On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jason Eberl about the human person and bioethics. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is human nature? What is identity? What does it mean to say that a human person is made of flesh and blood or is an abstract sort of object? What do we mean by identity? What does bioethics have to do with metaphysics? What is hylomorphism? What are the alternative views to hylomorphism, dualism, materialism, etc.? When do human persons begin to exist? When do human persons cease to exist? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And what we like to say when we, what we mean by serious, it it means a lot of things, but we want to be serious about both sort of things like critical thinking, but also these other virtues that we've sort of tried to signal out of creating an intellectual culture of charity and curiosity and critical thinking and for us, cheerful confessionalism. So we think that the internet and different places needs more uh, strong content that, that challenges you and stretches you, but also does it in the right sort of way. Uh, so we take our cues a lot from th- texts in uh, the Bible, like James 3, where it talks about this meekness uh, from above, or the wisdom from above, and it's meek and it's open reason, and all these other virtues that we try to work at cultivating and displaying. We're not always perfect at it, but this is uh, our goal and our hope with, with the podcast. So today, thrilled to talk to Dr. Jason. Um, man, every time I forget how to say your last name, I start to question myself. It's okay. Um, it's Eberl. Eberl. So Dr. Jason Eberl, you know, I've heard it like 10 times and yet I still question myself. So he has got a book called the nature of human persons, metaphysics and bioethics. So I first came across this when I was part of a reading group at Southeastern Seminary with a couple of different professors from Duke University and Southeastern as we sort of just met together and read, read through it. And with a group of philosophers, like a biologist and a physicist and some others. So it was a lot of fun, fruitful discussion. So I'm excited to talk to him about the book today and introduce you all to him. So before we do that, um, Dr. Eberl, give me a little bit of background on who you are, you know, where you're at for those who may not know you. And then what was it that really spurred, Hey, I want to write this particular book. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you, Jordan, for uh, having me on the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here and um, get the chance to talk, talk about this uh, book, which was a very much a, a long, had a long gestation, I'll just say. So it's uh, definitely a labor of, of love and intellectual effort and, uh, and prayer, lots of prayer. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm Jason Ebrill, and I my current position is I am director of the Albert Nagy Center for Healthcare Ethics at St. Louis University, um, and uh, professor of healthcare ethics and philosophy. I'm a philosopher by training. I actually got my PhD from St. Louis University about nearly 20 years ago now. Um, studied with Professor Eleanor Stump, who's a well-known Thomistic scholar and um, a late uh, Jesuit priest, uh, Father John Cavanaugh, who was the first to introduce me to bioethics. Um, My interests were primarily in metaphysics and theories of human nature, human personhood, philosophy of mind, uh, various topics in philosophy of religion. 
And having taken some you know, ethics classes as an undergrad, when I was actually in the seminary studying to be a Roman Catholic priest, um, I had this vision of bioethics as uh, just debating abortion all day. And this, that, to be honest, as important as that issue is, particularly in our times now, um, that was the kind of like the last thing I wanted to do with my career. Um, but then through Father Kavanaugh, I got exposed to various other interesting issues in bioethics where our understanding of human nature, of human personhood, of, of self-identity are crucially important, um, both at the margins of human life, uh, both you know the beginning and, and as we approach death, uh, but also throughout the lifespan. And especially with the growth of biotechnology and things like gene editing and cybernetic implants and so on, um, our understanding of, again, human nature, human personhood, I think, is more important than ever. And so my whole career has kind of been in that line of research. And this book really kind of represents the culmination uh, of the work I've been doing for uh, the past you know, couple decades. Um, it, it can include several previously published articles of mine, you know, updated uh, in response to, say, newer literature, but then a lot of new things, uh, even unpublished parts of my dissertation finally are seeing the light of day <laughs> in this book. And, um, and I think the timing is fortuitous because, again, as we think about issues like abortion, like the Dobbs decision, as there's ongoing debates about how we define death, um, and with this sort of new push towards uh, using biotechnology, whether it's against gene editing or other forms of biotechnology to either enhance human beings uh, there's this whole push of this group called transhumanism uh, that I'm kind of engaged with right now. Um, it, was, it was the good time for this book to come out. And, and, and I'm, again, really grateful for the opportunity to, to discuss it with you today, Jordan, and your audience. Awesome. I mean, you hit all the hot button issues right there. So you're constantly, I'm sure, in hot water. Now, I, before, we, before we jump in, I've got the book here, the cover. Did you come up with this cover design? Because I'll be honest, it's like, Weird. <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe I bet you there's some like artists out there that I should be aware of that I'm not. So, so yes, I picked that myself. Um, one of my favorite artists is the surrealist Salvador Dali, and that's and that's a Dali uh, uh, painting. Um, and to be to be perfectly honest, the intention of Dali's painting doesn't have anything to do with the book, but I think the image is very um, ties in quite well. So what the painting has to do is with the, um, the birth of the new man, uh, which is, in this case, uh, America, the U.S., in the wake of the Second World War. And you kind of, so kind of notice like this, you know, the image again with this eggshell of the globe and the, the new man is coming out of where the U.S. is and kind of pushing aside the old continent of Europe. You know, Europe used to be the, the dominating power. Now, after World War II, uh, the U.S. is supplanting it as, as the new superpower, along with the Soviet Union. And, um, and, and so that, that's Dali's meaning with the, with the painting. But just the notion of, of humanity, first of all, rising out of the earth and our connection with the environment. Not that that's a huge theme of, of this in this particular book, but I become more and more immersed in the ecological literature um, as a Roman Catholic thinker, I've been very much influenced by Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. And so all that was kind of in my head. I, I knew I wanted a, a really stunning piece of artwork, something eye-catching, something meaningful. And so that's where I landed with that piece. 
So that's actually very cool. So it, that just uh, shows everybody that I am not very adept at these sort of things. I didn't even notice the continents when I looked at it. So now you're like explaining all these things. That's, that's actually really fascinating. So as we jump into the conversation, we have a you know, wide range of listeners. Um, I think most of them are pretty well educated, but it's still I like to start at some sort of basic terminology so that we're on the same footing. So when we think about terms like human nature, identity, um, what do we mean by those terms? And are there ways that they can be variously used that we should be aware of so that when we're using it, we know that let's make sure to define it so that we're not miscommunicating with other people? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because the the term human nature, uh, I'm I'm using it in a very sort of classical philosophical sense. The way, for example, Thomas Aquinas, who is my philosophical touch touchstone, um, whose view of human nature I'm articulating and defending in this book, and and the way Aquinas thinks of human nature is um, in the sense of a set of of metaphysical qualities in which all existing human beings share. Um, it's not, you know, for, for the more philosophically astute uh, and informed listeners, it's not like Plato's theory of forms where humanity is some, you know, ethereal ideal that all of us kind of, you know, strive to live up to, but none of us do. It's more following Aristotle, who understood human nature as well as any sort of universal concept to be grounded within the objects themselves, the beings themselves. So where is human nature? It is in you, Jordan, and it is in me. Uh, but of course, we're individual instantiations of human nature. So what is human nature? It is those universal sets of qualities in which you and I and, and all human beings share. But as you note, the term human nature gets used in a lot of other ways. And certainly one could kind of take Aquinas's view of human nature that I articulate and relate it. It's not competing with these other views. You kind of relate it to them, but it's not those other ways of approaching it are not my project in this book. So for example, psychologists, their idea of human nature is what sort of fundamental psychological traits do we all have? And so you have Jungian archetypes and you have Freud's id, ego, superego, that type of thing. Um, Evolutionary biologists look at, you know, how we have developed and evolved uh, in, in our biological form. And again, our biology very much matters in Aquinas' conception of human nature. But being human is not simply a matter of our biology. So the, the biologists uh, and the evolutionary biologists, they're, they're uncovering an aspect of human nature, but not all of it. And then finally, you have like sociologists and anthropologists who are kind of looking at human nature in a much more broader cultural, again, social sense, um, as opposed to my focus, which is very specifically on the individual person. Um, not that individual persons exist in isolation from communities and societies um, and cultural histories, but I'm really interested in these two fundamental questions. One, what is it that, that composes us? What are we made out of? Are we just made out of matter organized into a biological construct? Are we made up of a soul or spirit in this kind of platonic or Cartesian dualist sense? Or are we some sort of combination of the two? And you know, that's kind of where Aquinas' view lies, is in that, that middle position. The other question is the identity question. What makes 
me as a human being persist through time. You know, I, I pick up a picture of myself when, you know, I was five years old and I don't look like that anymore. Yeah, there's some, you know, some facial similarities and so on, but, you know, I'm taller, I'm bigger than that five-year-old. Uh, I'm also psychologically, I hope, quite different from that five-year-old. At the very least, I've gained new memories and experiences. So if I've changed both psychologically and physically, how can we say I'm the same being as that five-year-old? What makes us the same? So that's the other question I'm interested in this book. Very good. So one last sort of like ground setting question that I think is pretty interesting. So you, you subtitled it, you know, the nature of human persons, metaphysics and bioethics. In your mind, what does metaphysics have to do with bioethics? Oftentimes, if I'm talking to a metaphysician, they have no concept or no working knowledge of bioethics. So how do these things two function together? Yeah, it's actually a very contentious question because, as you just said, uh, various you know, metaphysicians and other philosophers think of bioethics as like simply applied ethics, like all bioethicists do is say, well, here's what a utilitarian says, and here's what a deontologist says, and maybe if you're really avant-garde, you might say, here's what a virtue theorist says <laughs> about X, Y, or Z issue. Um, but And that's, honestly, that's kind of what I thought about bioethics and uh, when I was like an undergrad, and like I said, I was kind of un uninterested in it. But as I got into the field, I realized the, the plethora of issues and the multidisciplinary approaches to resolving really complex questions. And... The, the question that you raise is also contentious from the bioethics side, because there are some bioethicists who don't think metaphysics, metaphysical questions help us in bioethics. And I'll admit that simply settling or making a case for a particular metaphysical uh, answer doesn't resolve all debates. So, for example, um, if one believes or you're able to convince someone to believe um, a particular answer about the personhood of the fetus. And, and so let's say you, someone believes that um, human beings begin at conception and that a fetus is a person all throughout development. Therefore, um, well, and that's it. They've established that. That's the metaphysical question. Well, what does that tell us about the ethics of abortion? Well, in and of itself, it doesn't. And there are plenty of arguments saying that, look, even if a fetus is a person, abortion is morally permissible. And other arguments that says, even if a fetus is not a person, abortion might be morally impermissible. So the ethics, the, I always say the metaphysics informs, but doesn't dictate the ethics. That being said, I do think on a question, for example, about abortion, it is vitally important if we're going to talk about the moral permissibility of abortion to first establish what it is that we are talking about. <laughs> so I think that what is a question, is a fetus a person or not, is it a crucial datum that informs, but again, doesn't by itself resolve that type of, of ethical debate. And same thing at the end of life. You know, when do we define the death of a human being? When is it okay to explant vital organs uh, from a human being's uh, body? When can we, you know, legitimately declare death? So again, there, there's that that's kind of some of the areas where, where I see metaphysics and bioethics intersecting. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to spend some time on both the sort of the origin and the ending of the human person. But before we do that, so you defend a version of holomorphism. Now I think a lot of our listeners probably are vaguely familiar with holomorphism. So maybe you kind of 
give me that sketch if you're teaching students saying this is what hylomorphism is and this is how it might contrast to something more dualistic or something more materialistic and how it sort of situates itself. Yeah. Um, so let me start with the extremes and then I'll move to, to move to the middle. So dualism, uh, I referenced already the idea of a platonic or Cartesian dualism, right? So Rene Descartes before him, Plato had this view that what I am as, as a human being, um, it, I am identical to an immaterial soul or mind spirit, call it what have you, but it's an immaterial thing, an immaterial substance that is most truly what I am. I'm a mental being. And I have a, a relationship to a physical material body, but it's kind of akin to my relationship to my car, right? I get in my car, I drive it. Um, if, you, if you knew what my car looked like and knew my license plate number and you saw me, saw my car driving down the street, you might not see me in it, but you might say, oh, there goes Jason, right? Um, and, and that's again, kind of how, how Plato envisions the, the person body relationship. Um, at the other extreme, you have materialism or more specifically reductive materialism, which basically reduces, um, the human being, the human person to simply our bodies, whether we're talking about our body as a whole, or maybe even just our brains or even just a small part of our brain. Um, you know, different materialists will, will debate like what is, the most crucial essential aspects of our material body for, for each of us to exist. But the idea there is there's a fundamental denial of anything immaterial about our, our nature. Hylomorphism lies in the, in the virtuous mean between these extremes, I always like to say, <laughs> because again, following Aristotle. So like Plato, Aristotle believed that there is such a thing as a soul, that there is this immaterial aspect of human nature. But when he defines what the soul is, he doesn't say it's the mind or the intellect. The intellect is but one power of the soul. What the soul is, essentially, is the form of a material body, a form of, of a living human body. And what he means by this is that, again, for those unfamiliar with Aristotle's metaphysics, Everything that exists, according to Aristotle, every natural substance, every living thing, every animal, every human being, every artifact is a combination of matter and a form. So, you know, the cup that holds my coffee, right? It has the form of cupness, which means it has a certain shape, a certain solidity, right? You couldn't have a, a gaseous cup <laughs> or a liquid cup, Um and, and it has to have a certain shape to be able to hold liquid, and, or we wouldn't call it a cup, when it fulfills its, its fundamental function as a cup. And so just as artifacts that we create, like cups, have a function, living things have a function uh, to live, to thrive, to reproduce themselves. Animals have a function to be sentient, to sense the world around them, to have consciousness, to have emotional responses. And then human beings, as rational animals, have those same functions. In addition, we have the functional cap capacity to think in an abstract, self-conscious, intellective fashion. And while that particular ability that, again, we call our, our psychology or our mental ability, our mind, is in itself 
immaterial. It only exists insofar as there is a material body supporting that function by providing sense data from the world. And certainly every time we think, our brains are doing stuff. So the point is that the dualists are saying something kind of right. The materialists are saying something kind of right. And hylomorphism is trying to, you know, preserve the best of both those worlds. Uh, at the same time, the you might, you know, the critique is that well, trying to hold these two very disparate views together creates its own tensions and its own problems, and and ultimately might make it untenable. But that's what I'm trying to defend in this book. Yeah, very good. So now I do want to get into some of the. I don't know if it's more practical sort of questions, but the the ones that always end up coming up. So when we think about when do humans begin to exist, I mean, it, you've sketched, what I like about your book is that you do a really good job of sort of giving taxonomies of different views. So maybe just kind of walk me through the ideas on when it is that a human person begins to exist. And is that distinct from when a human nature begins to exist? Yeah. So throughout the book, I... I use the term human being as kind of the, um, the, the neutral term for whatever it is that you and I are, right? It's undeniable that you, Jordan, and I and all of your listeners are human beings. And it's pretty uncontroversial that all of us being aware, being self-conscious, being able to think rationally, that we're also persons. Now, if we think about human being in a strictly biological sense, then it is relatively uncontroversial when a human being begins to exist. There's a couple debated views. Um, but basically, by, by the early embryonic stage, you have something that is genetically, biologically human, right? But the question that becomes is, does that biologically human being, is that this already a person or not? Or does it only become a person when it, say, develops a functional brain, which doesn't come until later in fetal development, or when that brain is able to actually generate self-aware thought, self-conscious, rational thought, which doesn't even happen until a good chunk of time after birth. And so you have uh, views, for example, put forth by folks like Peter Singer or Michael Tooley or Marianne Warren, who um, I call them performance theorists collectively because they basically say, you're not a person until you actually perform as a person. And and if being a person means to be self-conscious and rational and autonomous, then even newborn infants aren't yet persons. And uh, Thule, for example, has a famous book called Abortion and Infanticide, where he argues that if abortion is morally permissible, then so will be infanticide, because he's leaning on that way of construing a person. Um, but then other views, like I said, either push personhood back to say, you know, the onset of neurological development, which is you know occurs on a spectrum, of course, but you know key parts of the brain pretty much form in the fetus around 24 to 28 weeks of gestational age. So some push it back that far, and then I push it back all the way to when you have you know the genetic identity of the embryo such that it has the the coding in place such that it will develop that brain that and 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 by developing that brain will be able to think in a self-conscious rational way 
So in, in technical Aristotelian terms, I'm basically saying that from the end of the conception process, which is about a 24-hour process, what you have in terms of the one-celled zygote that results from the union of sperm and egg is a being with an intrinsic active potentiality to develop itself within, of course, a supportive environment, right? If it's not in a uterus or the, you know, maybe soon we'll have artificial womb technology, uh, but if it's not in the right environment, yes, it won't develop. It won't be able to actualize that potential. But other than having being in the right environment, that potential is intrinsic to the embryo. And the embryo later fetus is developing itself into a more fully actualized person. So it's not that the embryo or the later fetus is potentially but not yet a person. It is already a person with the potential for further development, to further actualize itself. So the more extreme views like Peter Singer, et cetera, I, I mean, how do they justify that like just intuit broad like broad intuition with most people i think most people would say that seems weird to be okay to kill an infant it seems weird to be able to kill anybody who's deficient you know intellectually i mean it seems like almost everybody who's mentally handicapped or me when i'm asleep i mean how do they handle objections like that is it just well this is just the way it is or <laughs> what's the idea behind it because it doesn't seem to me to have very much broad intuitive appeal no, and of course, our our broad into our broadly shared intuitions is one way in which we test philosophical hypotheses, right? Um, but our intuitions can also be flawed, and and so speaking in the voice of say Singer and Thule, certainly I don't share their view, but uh, speaking in their voice, what they would say is, yeah, you have these intuitions, and yeah, there's certainly, you know, we certainly shouldn't just kill infants willy nilly, but if we're going to be rationally consistent, if there's a logic to, say, aborting a fetus diagnosed with trisomy 21, Down syndrome, if that's morally permissible, and if the reason you think it's morally permissible is because you don't think that fetus, with or without trisomy 21, is yet a person, then even once they're born, they're still not yet a person. And yeah, your intuitions tell you differently, but that's just sentimentalism. Right? It's, you're anthropomorphizing that, that infant the way we anthropomorphize our d- dogs and cats sometimes. Right, They're not persons and neither is that infant. And so if we're going to be philosophically consistent, then if we think, if one were to think that it's okay to abort the fetus with trisomy 21, then euthanizing a, fe- a neonate born with trisomy 21 would also be justified. Now, of course, I don't think it's justified to do either. And I think the fact, like I think the fact that Singer and Thule think that way, and and show the logical consistency of that view, doesn't show so much that their view is right. Is that their entire view of what a person is is fundamentally flawed? Okay, so then I think probably most of our listeners are going to fall into origin begins at conception. Do you think there are any unique challenges to that view? I, I think there are. Honestly, I think. All of the views I articulated, even the extreme view of Singer and Thule, um, there is, you know, they have their defenders. And usually the reason people defend these views is either they got some sort of, again, moral intuition they're trying to support, some sort of moral presupposition that they're trying to support, um, 
or that they just have some sort of fundamental, you know, philosophical commitments that force them to accept that view. And so whatever the commitment, so for example, with Singer and Tuli's view, they're the fundamental commitment that they're committed to is a certain view of what it means to be a human person in terms of being self-conscious and aware. And it does seem right that what's important to us, what matters to us about being persons is our self-consciousness, is our awareness of ourselves and the world around us, is our ability to think. Um, So again, that seems intuitively right, but then they just kind of take it to this extreme. With respect to the view, you know, the view that I defend uh, in terms of personhood beginning at conception, um, there's, again, there's something intuitively right about just saying, look, if something's genetically human, then the burden is on those who would say that it's not like us, right, who are as born human beings. But there are some uh, particular challenges. Um, One challenge is the question of whether an embryo, once conceived, even though it has the human genotype instantiated within it, does it yet count as an individual organism, right? Because part of, part of the definition of what we typically think of as, a, as a, a human being or a person is that one is an individual distinct from all other human individuals. But within the first two weeks or so after conception occurs, as the embryo is traveling through the fallopian tube and implanting in the uterus, uh, there's the possibility it might split into genetically identical twins, um, there's also a high failure rate of embryos failing to implant in the uterus. Um, most embryos that get fertilized actually do not make it to implantation. And so what's happening here? Um, does twinning cause a person to split in half uh, and become two people? Does that mean the first person went out of existence? Does it mean that the, those, one of those people's original, you know, was the one that started that conception, and the second one's kind of a new one that that has come into being. And what about all these these lives, these you know alleged persons uh, who are failing to implant and therefore die? Um, why, you know, if we put this in a theological context, this is one aspect of the problem of evil. Why would God allow for so much death? And so some who again want to push personhood as far back as we reasonably can. Uh, have argued that it's only an implantation when twinning is no longer possible, when the the various cells that make up the embryo are now starting to differentiate into tissues and eventually organs and organ systems. That's when you have um, the actual instantiation of of, of a human being and, and a human person. Uh, so that's just one of the one of the challenges, even w- among those who again want to be as uh, you know conservative, I'm saying it with a small c, as conservative as possible in where we place the beginning of, of human uh, beings. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And the small c conservative makes sense too. My, my natural intuition is if, if we're not sure, we should play it safe. Um, yeah, which is actually what the, what, what the Vatican stance is. Um, mm. You know, the Catholic Church, I, I know your listeners are representing a, a broad uh uh, broad Christian group, um, but just to to articulate the Catholic perspective, um, the officially the Catholic Church doesn't declare when ensoulment occurs. Right? They're like that's a metaphysical question. Certainly, you know the Church 
affirms views like those of Aquinas and others. Although Aquinas himself historically didn't think that ensoulment occurred at conception. And that's because of, you know, his bad medieval biology, right, from the 13th century. I think if Aquinas were alive today, he would argue it, it begins at conception. But the point being is that the church says, look, we don't know when ensoulment occurs. So yeah, let's uh, employ this attitude of precaution. And just as you just said, Jordan, if if we have a reasonable basis for believing that ensoulment does occur at conception, even though maybe it doesn't, let's treat every conceived embryo as if it is a person and, and, and grant it its right to life. Cool. So now I, I do want to shift to the other end of the spectrum of death. Uh, in your mind, like when do people cease to exist? And then, you know, we can talk about possible postmortem existence because I don't think I realized how complicated uh, this question was until I started thinking about it more deeply and realizing, wait a second, I don't really know when people should be declared dead. So maybe just walk me through a little bit of the the questions and the challenges that come through that. Yeah. So there, there are basically three main positions uh, being debated in the bioethics and metaphysical literature uh, in both Catholic and secular realms and broader Christian realms of when, when does a human being die? Um, one view is uh, kind of the the view that you would get again from people like Peter Singer or Michael Tooley, um, kind of paralleling their view at the beginning of life, is that once a human being permanently loses consciousness, permanently loses awareness and the ability to think, that human being is dead as a person. They might be still be alive biologically as a human organism, but the person is gone. And so a lot of your listeners may be familiar uh, with the name Terry Schiavo. Um, This was a a case um, about 15 years, 17 years ago now. She died in 2005. And this was a a woman who had lived for 15 years in what is called a persistent vegetative state. And the basic idea is that her, the higher, the upper parts of her brain, what we call the neocortex, had suffered irreparable damage after she had had a, a, a cardiac arrest at the age of 29. And as a result, even though her heart still beat, her lungs still functioned, she still breathed on her own, um, she, could not, she was not aware of her environment. She could not think on her own. She was no longer conscious. And there was no hope of her regaining consciousness. And so the, the, the ethical debate surrounded the fact of uh, she needed a, a feeding tube uh, in her stomach to provide her art, artificial uh, nutrition hydration. And so the question was, keep the feeding tube in and keep her alive or remove the feeding tube and allow her to die. And again, going back to a position like Singer's or Thule's, they would say, she's not a person anymore. And therefore, we are. it's okay. It's not euthanizing her to remove the feeding tube. Um, so that's that's one view. Then you have... Um, what's called whole brain death or total brain failure, or sometimes just plain brain death. Um, although sometimes in the media, people use the term brain death to refer to persistent vegetative state as well. But the idea here with what I'm going to call whole brain death is um, not only has the upper parts of the brain, the neocortex, but the, the critical parts of, of the entire brain have stopped functioning. There may be some residual electrical and activity in some hormonal secretions happening in the hypothalamus. Um, but the not only has the cortex stopped 
functioning, so the person's comatose, but also the brainstem, which is critical for regulating the heartbeat and also for um, moving the diaphragm, right? It sends those autonomic signals that regulate our bodies so that we stay, you know, keep ourselves alive. So the main difference between, say, someone like Terry Schiavo on PVS and someone who's experienced whole brain death is that later patient needs a ventilator to force air into their lungs to keep oxygenated blood flowing throughout their body um, because their brain is no, no longer doing that for them. And in uh, the early 1980s, um, that, way, that whole brain criterion of death became legal in the United States. And it's legal in various parts of the world. Um, there's, there's some resistance to it. I'll get that to that in, in a minute. But by and large, this has become a widely accepted way of defining a person as dead. And one of the advantages, this is not the reason why we should hold this definition, but one advantage of holding this definition of death is that allows us to procure organs for transplant. Um, because now, if you declare someone dead using the whole brain criterion, then you can keep them on the ventilator, keep oxygenated blood going through all their organs, and then the transplant team can come in and take out their organs while those organs are still freshly perfused with oxygenated blood and therefore the healthiest organs for transplant. Now, there's been... there's been pushback against the whole brain criterion because of cases. And another case, some of your listeners may be familiar with uh, a young girl named Jahai McMath. Uh, this is a, uh, back in 2013, this was um, a 13 year old girl who experienced whole brain death and whose body was being kept alive on a ventilator. She was legally declared dead in the state of California, but her family did not accept that she was actually dead. Because again, think about it. She's on her body's on the ventilator. There's still blood flowing through her organs. Her chest is she's breathing. Her chest is rising and falling. Her heart is beating. Her skin is warm to the touch, right? And so they're like, "How can you say that she's dead?" And so they actually successfully um, uh, sued to have her body released, so they could transport her to New Jersey, where New Jersey has a law that allows for one to basically conscientiously object to the whole brain criterion. Um, and the reason why is New Jersey has a large population of Orthodox Jews, and Orthodox Jews do not accept whole brain death. Um, in their view, right, God breathed his spirit into Adam, spirit, respiration, breathing is the sign of, of, of ensoulment. And so as long as there's breathing happening, even if it's being aided by a ventilator, the person is still uh, still there. So, and, and Jahai McMath, I should say, her body, um, well, depending on one's view, either her body or she continued to live um, for another five years. It wasn't until 2018 um, that, that her body finally succumbed to, um, I think it was kidney failure that finally um, ended her life. And so she has this unique uh, stance of having two death certificates, one in California dated 2013, and one in New Jersey dated 2018. Okay, so that's all very interesting. So now I want to know, what is your preferred uh, position and why? Uh, yeah, so in, in the book, I defend and have defended other publications um, the validity of the whole brain criterion. Um, as, as compelling as cases like Jahai McMass, and there are you know plenty of other cases that could be cited, 
um, I do not believe that the what appears to be an integrated and sold organism, you know, living human organism, is still there. Um, and partly because of the extent to which we need to use um, artificial contrivances, ventilators, um, various phar- you know, pharmacopoeia and so on, to keep that body alive, to keep that body going. Um, the, the, the body seems to, when after it's experienced whole brain death, to want to disintegrate, to want to fall apart, as normally happens when you die. And we are using technological artifice to kind of keep the body together. At least that's my interpretation. But that's a contentious view. And, and others uh, view it in exactly the opposite way that, no, we are just helping the body that is still doing things to maintain itself with this sort of what we call integrative unity. Um, and I specifically defend whole brain death as consistent with a Thomistic anthropology of the human person. Uh, that specifically Aquinas's view of ensoulment um, doesn't dictate the whole brain view. I mean, I think holding the whole brain view or holding the the other criterion, which would be uh, you know waiting towards circulatory respiratory collapse, I think both those views are consistent with the Thomistic anthropology. It's just a matter of within then which is the right view. The view I think is completely not consistent with the Thomistic anthropology is that so-called higher brain death view or neocortical death where uh, you lose personhood the moment you lose consciousness. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, the last thing I want to ask about is postmortem existence. If hylomorphism is true and postmortem existence is true, how it, does hylomorphism not like collapse into something like dualism? Mm-hmm. I mean, here's the thing. Hylomorphism is a form of dualism, just as it's a form of non-reductive materialism, right? There is definitely it's definitely a type of dualism. It's just not the same as the more extreme substance dualism of, say, Plato or Descartes. Although there's there is actually some debate about whether Descartes by the sixth meditation actually had adopted something more like hylomorphism, but uh, that's a separate whole separate conversation. But um, so here's what on Aquinas's view. Um, well, first I should start with Aristotle. Aristotle, um, upon whom Aquinas, you know, draws and builds his work, but who, with whom he doesn't always agree, there's debate among Aristotelian scholars about this, but I side uh, with, with those among the Aristotle scholars who say that Aristotle's view was that although there are these immaterial aspects of the soul, our intellect, our mind, our will, that the soul, the intellect, is so dependent upon the body to function by, again, the senses providing sense data for us to think about. Aristotle famously said we think in images, so the imagination, which is a part of the brain in his view, plays a crucial role. That once the body and its organs cease functioning, there's the intellect can't do its job. And so death of the body leads to annihilation of the, of the soul, just as it would for an animal soul, right? Or, or, or the soul of a plant. Um, Aquinas says, no, um, there's lots of things that the intellect can do without the body. Um, Yes, normally our normal mode of thinking depends on sensation and uses imagination. Everything Aristotle said is right, but that's just our, our natural, our normal mode of thinking. But by itself, the intellect can still 
reflect on all the all the the knowledge it had gained throughout life, right? It, it can't gain new knowledge through sensation because it doesn't have a body, but it can still reflect on, right? The the self-awareness is still there. I, I can still think about me. Um, and it's always possible, Aquinas says, this is a, a line he draws from Augustine, for God to just directly infuse new knowledge directly into the soul, right? So the soul could even still gain new knowledge uh, with some divine uh, assistance. So for all those reasons, Aquinas thinks that when the death of the body occurs, the the soul, the soul of the human person, persists and remains functional, limited in its functionality, but it's functional nonetheless. And we'll experience, um, you know, there, there's sort of an immediate judgment of the individual person. Um, and so if, if one is among the blessed, one will immediately experience the beatific vision. If one is among the damned, one will immediately experience the, the pangs of hell, and then, of course, there's purgatory on the Catholic on the Catholic view, um, but the soul by itself, and, and this is again the big difference from say Platonic or Cartesian dualism. If one is a substance dualist, then when the soul is in that state of disembodiment, that's the soul in its perfection. That's the soul where it's supposed to be. Plato thought our body was a prison for the soul. It hindered the soul. It dragged it down. Um, Whereas for Aquinas, the soul in this disembodied state is incomplete. It's imperfect. It, it longs, he says at one point, it longs for reunion with its body. Um, which is why not only did Aquinas already have a theological commitment to the, believing the resurrection, he thought philosophically resurrection is sort of required um, for the soul, for the human person to come back whole and entire and not exists simply by virtue of a part of them existing. Okay, that's that's super helpful. So thank you for walking us through all this. And man, if you're listening right now, I mean, you should go check out the book. So here, here's just one endorsement on the back. There are innumerable books in bioethics, but none that take up issues of human anthropology and anything like the depth found here. So I mean, if, if you've been listening, I mean, I know you can already tell that it's probably an excellent book, but just listen to it. I, I think it's worthwhile to engage this. Um, as we've mentioned, a lot of these issues are extremely relevant. I know we've got a lot of pastors who listen. These sort of things are extremely helpful to thinking through practical questions that you're going to encounter all the time. So I encourage you to check out uh, his work. Check out this book. I will make sure to link to this in the show notes. Um, and I'll try to link to a couple other uh, works that he's, he's got out as well so that you can easily just click and find them. So thanks, Jason, for taking the time to talk with us. This was a lot of fun. Um, I really appreciate you, you doing it. And for everybody who's been listening, as you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.